0: All right, let's go ahead and get started. I will pray for us, and then we will jump into the study. So let's pray. Father, you are good, you are gracious to us, and you are faithful to your promises as your word declares to us, Um, and we see that so evidently in in the books we're going to study this morning in the Old Testament, um, that you are a a jealous God for your own glory. Um, And you're faithful to to your promises that that show your glory to the creation. Um, And we pray that as we open up your word, that we would submit our lives under it, that we would cherish it, that we would love it, um, and that we would be transformed as a result of your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So today we are continuing our series to the book Dominion and Dynasty. And we're going to be moving along. Sorry, i got to get a Bible. Through the Old Testament by working our way through the Torah or the, the Pentateuch. And the goal is today to get through the next two books of of Exodus and Leviticus. And we're going to start by looking at the book of Exodus. And what we need to note to start off is that from the very beginning of Exodus, there's a presupposition that the reader of Exodus is familiar with what occurred in Genesis. Which might seem obvious to us, since it's right after it. But we see from the opening verse, there's an assumption that the reader already knows that the the names Jacob and Israel refer to the same person, which we saw in in Genesis 32. And Exodus then largely continues the same story that we saw in Genesis. It's a continuing, like a a second chapter you could could think of, of the same story. And allusions to, to Genesis occur throughout the rest of the or the whole of the Exodus narrative. Particularly the the expectation that the Israelites will, will occupy the land of Canaan in fulfillment of the promise given to the patriarchs of Israel. So remember that promise given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So the theme of dominion, we could say, is continued all throughout the book of Exodus. As well as the theme of dynasty or seed, which we're going to see. So there, there's massive evidence, uh, Dempster's arguing, that, that these two books are connected and part of one larger story. And in verse 7 of chapter 1 of Exodus, we see sort of fulfillment language of the, of the Israelites being fruitful and multiplying. They, they grew exceedingly strong and the land was filled with them. They, they were, in a very real sense, fulfilling the mandate given in Genesis 1. They were being fruitful and multiplying and representing the Lord to the earth, to the pagan nations, particularly Egypt. They were imaging God. Now, what is viewed as, as to us, when we read that, what is viewed as creation blessing to the reader is perceived as a massive political threat to Egypt, or by, by the Egyptian leader, by the pharaoh. The, the Israelites are now growing too large to be governed. So the pharaoh begins to, to oppress the Israelites. He, he enslaves them, he puts them under hard labor, and the goal is to, to lessen their power and lessen their growth. Essentially. This plan doesn't work. The the Israelites continue to increase in number, even in slavery. So the Pharaoh commands the the Egyptian midwives to kill, to to murder at birth all male Hebrew children. And then when the the midwives bravely disobey this this wicked order, Pharaoh commands all his, his people must throw every son of the Hebrews in the Nile River again, trying to exterminate um, the male line of the Israelites. It's truly a wicked, reprehensible order by the Egyptian leader. All of this sets the stage for the birth of Moses. But before getting to Moses, we need to view chapter 1 in light of the whole story. Dempster argues that... If Exodus is read in isolation from Genesis or, or in isolation from the, the big story of the, of the scriptures, then Pharaoh can just be viewed as just another oppressive tyrant. Like you can add him to the list to, to all of the other oppressive tyrants that we've seen in world history who, who oppresses his minority subjects. But in light of the context of Genesis, we can see that the oppression is part of something much larger than that. And that is the conflict or struggle between the the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman we saw in Genesis 3. Israel is is not just an ethnic or national entity. They are, as we've seen, a new humanity who who are going to bring blessing to the world through a promised seed. And the conflict and really explicit attack on the seed in Exodus 1, right, that the male babies of the Hebrews, of the Israelites, should cue us readers back to Genesis 3, back to this conflict. So this is far more than mere political oppression. This oppression from, from Pharaoh is the playing out of the seed of the serpent, which, which I'm arguing, Dempster's arguing, is Pharaoh in the story trying to eliminate the, the seed of the woman, the Israelite children. So that's how I think we should be connecting these stories or how, how the beginning of Exodus connects to the larger story that we've seen so far. Therefore, I think it should come as no surprise to us as readers that in chapter 2 of Exodus, we we see that the focus narrow in the narrative on the birth of one particular Israelite seed, Moses. And and Dempster argues pretty convincingly that Moses, in the account of his birth, should point us backwards to to Noah and forwards to, to the event that Moses is going to lead the Israelites through in the, in the parting of the Red Sea. So baby Moses is placed in an in a ark-like vessel. And there's some connections in the Hebrew that I'm not going to get into, but there are some connections in those terms. Um, but it's a floating structure that, that saves Moses from the waters of the Nile River. There, there are echoes here of the flood account in, in Genesis 6, where God saves Noah and his Family from the, the flood of waters of his wrath. I think this should, should indicate to us that, that Moses is viewed as a, a new savior type figure as Noah was in the narrative of, of his life back in Genesis 6. One that will, will save his people. In his saving from the waters of the Nile foreshadow, so now we're looking forward, or, or prefigure Israel as the nation's escape and salvation from the water at the Red Sea. In the least, we can, we can know that, that from his birth narrative, that, that Moses is going to be an important figure in the story of Exodus, which we all know as we read the rest of the story. But it's clear also the way that the, narr- or the narrative of his birth is chronicled, that he's going to be an important figure. Now, the text moves quickly after Moses' birth to his adoption by an Egyptian princess and then to his exile from Egypt for for his murdering of an Egyptian. And, And Moses settles down in the wilderness of Sinai, which will be an important place. Sinai is going to be a very important place as the narrative moves forward in Exodus, especially in the second half of the book. And he marries and he starts a family with a Midianite. And his exile in the text is paralleled in the story with the exile and impression of his people, the, the Israelites in Egypt. So all of this, the, I think Genesis 1 and 2, it's a, it should paint for us a pretty bleak picture um, for the Israelites and for Moses. But in chapter 2, there is a note of hope. And in verses 24 and 25 of chapter 2, we see that God hears the groaning of the Israelites in slavery. And the text says that God remembers his covenant with Abraham. He remembers his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. God knew of their oppression. And according to Dimster, this text signals to the reader that something important is about to happen in the narrative. God is aware of his people, and the assumption is that God is about to act on behalf of his people. God is about to act precisely because he's in covenant with a particular people, with the people of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And in the very next chapter, Moses then meets the Lord in a burning bush that is not consumed by the fire. Very famous account, right? And, and the Lord God commands that Moses take off his sandals for... Um, Moses was standing on holy ground. He was standing on holy ground. And this brings up the theme of holiness, specifically God's holiness and, and humanity's relationship with the holy God and how those two things can, can work together. Um, This story brings up that theme that's going to be very prominent in both Exodus and Leviticus, of how a sinful people can be in close relationship with a holy, perfect God. Moses is is commissioned by God to be a prophet, to to lead and deliver the, the Israelites from Egypt, from the Egyptian slavery that they were under. And God promises that he, Yahweh, his personal name, will be the one to deliver his people through his own sovereign power. It's it's abundantly clear that God is the hero in this story from the very beginning. And in verse 14 of chapter 3, God tells Moses to tell the Israelite people that his name is I Am who I Am. It's so a notoriously diff- difficult phrase to translate. Um, but probably I think probably the best translation is something like, I will be who I will be. I will be who I'll be. That That's his name. I am who I am. The, the name stresses the freedom of God, that, that he can't be changed or manipulated. God is unchanging, or what the church has historically confessed as, as immutable. It's it's inherent in his name. But Dempster also argues that in the context of the narrative, the name conveys to to Moses that this name, I Am, is is the name of the same God of the patriarchs. This is God's self-disclosed name, and and he remembers right the covenant he made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob And God is going to deliver the descendants of those patriarchs, of those men, to the promised land of Canaan. So the point in the story is that the promise of dominion will not be lost by the Egyptian oppression, which it's easy. easy, I I, want to stress this a lot. It's easy when we're reading this to kind of read it. We, We know the end of the story. But if we're just trying to get yourself in the story, this is a massive threat. The Egyptian slavery is a massive threat to the promise of dominion. This is one of the strongest nations the world has seen up to the time. They're, they're a military power, they're massively powerful. Um, and they're putting the Israelites under slavery is a threat. That's how we should read it in the narrative to the promise that God has given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So the point in the story is that the promise of dominion will not be lost by the Egyptian oppression. God will deliver his people. And when Moses goes to Pharaoh to to accomplish the deliverance of the Israelites, Pharaoh says in in Exodus 5.2, very important verse, Exodus 5.2, Pharaoh says, Who is Yahweh? Who is Yahweh that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? And Tempster states that the rest of the narrative, going up to, to Exodus 19, but the rest of the narrative of Exodus answers this question of Pharaoh. And I think that, that's, that's largely right. And we see, as becomes clear by the following narratives, that, that Yahweh, the Lord, is the only God of creation, And the Lord God is in covenant with a particular people that he is going to deliver. Which is not good news. Which is not good news at all for Pharaoh and Egypt, who stand opposed to that God, to Yahweh Elohim. God will make himself known in the worst way to Egypt. And this leads to the narrative of the plagues. But first, any questions or comments so far? So Dempster argues that to to truly understand the plagues and really their place in the larger storyline of Scripture, then we have to consider the the elements or the themes of, of geography and genealogy. Dempster writes that the plagues are employed to show Pharaoh who really has dominion, the firstborn son of the Egyptian god, Pharaoh, or the firstborn son of Yahweh, Israel. So again, this is is tying back for us to the the battle of the seeds, right? Seed of the serpent, seed of the woman. This is a, you could call it a cosmic showdown. It's not, not merely just earthly political powers. This is a cosmic showdown between the seed of the serpent, Pharaoh, and the seed of the woman, Israel. And the plagues function as the means by which God shows his rule, shows his, his absolute power over the most powerful earthly ruler of the time, the Pharaoh. And Dempster points us to an important text, Exodus 4, verses 21 through 26, where specifically where God gives the words to speak to Moses to Pharaoh. And Yahweh tells Moses to say that, "...that Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, let my son go, that they may serve me. Let my son go, that they may serve me. And if you don't, I will kill your firstborn son." So Israel is to be released from the Egyptian slavery because Israel is God's firstborn son. God's son. So notice how how genealogy is connected with God's purpose for the exodus. Or, or how dominion is connected for God's purpose for the exodus. The salvation of God's son, Israel, will be the death of Pharaoh's son. We could say that the oppression of Egypt strikes Israel's heel in a way, but, but Israel's God crushes Egypt's head. So I'm hoping you see the, the, the connection um, back to Genesis 3.15. That, that Dempster, and I'm arguing, is intended in the text by Moses, the author. Dempster writes of, of all the plagues saying, "When viewed against the wider context of the biblical storyline, the subsequent account of the ten plagues is another expression of the battle between the seeds, which culminates in the Passover, which culminates in the Passover. So the Passover is definitely the, the climax, I would argue, of the, of the plagues. And the climax between the battle between the the God of Israel and the so-called gods of Egypt. The tenth and final plague is God killing the firstborn males of Egypt, right? The seed of Egypt and passing over, killing the firstborn sons of Israel because of the blood of a sheep or goat being on the doorposts of their house. So remember this story in the, in the Passover account. So similar to Genesis 22, and, and Abraham's substitutionary sacrificial animal coming in the place of Isaac, in the Passover, a sheep or goat's blood put on the doorpost and lentils saves the firstborn child of the Israelites from death. So notice, again, we're, we're seeing a theme now being built up from Genesis to Exodus. We're seeing the theme of substitutionary sacrificial death. It's now becoming prominent in the larger story, uh, a repeated event. Obviously, this should alert us, I think, to, to the ultimate substitutionary sacrificial death, the sacrificial death of Christ. So the, the Passover... And the death of the Egyptian firstborn sons functions in the the Exodus narrative as the as the final blow to the Egyptians. That that leads to the liberation of the Israelites from liberation from Egyptian slavery. And in a larger big picture context, the Passover event, we see the firstborn seed, the firstborn of the seed of promise are saved from death by virtue of sacrifice while the firstborn children of the seed of Pharaoh are dealt a death blow. It's really the big picture here, and it's really an important, that's why I keep repeating it, it's important to the, the overall message of Exodus. Dempster writes, the firstborn son of Pharaoh was destined to rule, right? From a worldly standpoint, it seems like Pharaoh is in power, right? Pharaoh's son would be the one to rule, to have dominion over the creation, But instead, it is the firstborn son of Yahweh who will have dominion. This really is an awesome, I I, I encourage you just to read it this week, the the, the first 18 chapters of Exodus. Actually, read the whole thing, read the whole Bible. But specifically, the first 18 chapters of Exodus, it's really an awesome, frightening story of God's mighty power and devotion to, to his promises and his people and to his own glory. So there's no doubt in the narrative now God will do what he has promised and he cannot be challenged. Not even by the strongest nation in the known world at the time. He brought Egypt literally to their knees. But we also see in the last five plagues that it is, this is interesting, it is Yahweh who who is hardening the heart of Pharaoh. Which tells the reader that God is in control of all things, not just, just his people, but even the hearts of those who fundamentally oppose him, which is going to be a, a massively important truth as we read our Bibles. So Pharaoh, in the narrative, he lets the Israelites go, only to change his mind, right? He, and he tries to, to recapture the Israelites. And the Egyptians are, are then famously drowned in the waters of the Red Sea, while the Israelites emerge on the other side of the sea unscathed. They're, they're saved. God's people are finally, fully liberated from their Egyptian oppression and slavery. And Demster argues that the goal of the Exodus, of, of God's delivery of his people from Egyptian slavery, at least in the narrative, is both geographical and theological. Obviously, geographical it, Because the Exodus is to relocate Israel out of Egypt into the land of promise in fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant, of 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 the of the promise to give land to the patriarch's descendants. And the more theological goal of Exodus is the building of the Edenic Edenic? How do you say that? Eden-like sanctuary. So that the Lord can, can dwell with his people just as he once did with the first humans in the garden. And this is where we get the narrative of the tabernacle in Exodus. But the Israelites don't quite enter the land of promise yet. Which might be the expectation after this great deliverance is, okay, sweet, now let's get straight into the promised land. Um, but it's actually going to be quite a while before they do in the storyline of scripture. So after the Exodus narrative, the Israelites move to to Mount Sinai, which stands in the way, so to speak, of the of the Canaanite promised land. But Sinai is going to be very central to the story, which is is indicated to us in in a number of narrative signals from the author from from Moses. First, we can see which this we've seen this throughout so far. It's a, a narrative technique. We've seen a lot in Genesis. I think it might be one of Moses' Moses's favorites. And that is slowing down the narrative pace. Dempster points out that Israel stays at Sinai for 11 months in real time and 57 chapters in narrative time. So there's a, a big chunk of uh, written words about a smaller amount of historical time. So all the way from from Exodus 19 to Numbers 10 is Sinai. So that's a big portion of the Torah. Um, Just to make the point more, 68 chapters precede Sinai and 59 chapters follow it. So it really is a a third of the Pentateuch. So we could say confidently that, that Mount Sinai and the events that happened there is central to the Torah. It's central that it's in the middle of the Pentateuch, but but it's also the amount of time and words given to the Israelites at Sinai show the importance of it, the importance of it to the meaning of the message of the story that Moses is, is telling. So all those numbers, just Sinai is important. You can write that in your notes. Um, but the narrative is, is virtually suspended, and we get a bunch of of legal and priestly instruction with with brief narrative accounts interspersed from the rest of Exodus, which is Exodus 19 and Leviticus. So, another way we can know that this section of the Torah is important is because at the beginning of the Sinai narrative, God gives his ten words or ten commandments directly to the Israelites from the fire on the mountain. And these commandments, which is God's law for his his Israelite people, are going to be the foundation for his covenant that he's going to make with the nation of Israel. And really, the covenant with Israel at Sinai is the focus of of this content and and this portion of Exodus, starting from Exodus 19 onwards. And Dempster argues this covenant at Sinai, where where Israel enters into a covenant with God that that seems to be distinct or or different from the covenant that he makes with the patriarchs or with with Abraham and his descendants, because it's a covenant marked by specific conditions for both parties. Um, Obedience from the Israelites. Obeying the law of God that, that, that God just gave them in the Ten Commandments will lead to blessing and fullness of life. And disobedience, we see, is going to lead to curse, exile, and death. There's there's a condition. These are the we could say these are the, the terms of this covenant with the Israelites at Sinai. And the purpose of this covenant is that an obedient Israel who, who submits themselves fully to the law that God has just revealed to them, that God has just given them, will bring God's God's creation blessing that we saw all the way back, Genesis 1-3, through to the world. And in chapter 19 of of Exodus, Israel is characterized by three important phrases that that characterize the nation of Israel as God's covenant people, or God's covenant nation, you could say. And these these phrases will be developed as the story goes on with, with the nation of Israel. And those phrases are God's treasured possession, God's treasured possession among all the nations. Second, they're referred to as a kingdom of priests. And finally, a a holy nation. A holy nation. So a treasured possession suggests, obviously, just like personal property with immense value. We, we all have something that's a treasured possession to us. It is sometimes even mentioned in the Old Testament as a father's concern for a son. So Israel is different than, than all the other nations because they are of immense value to the Lord, right? They're his, he characterized them as his son. Second, a, a holy nation means a nation that's, that's distinct or, or you could say set apart by its, its holy conduct and service to God. By, by having God's law revealed to them, they can obey God's law, God's commands. Then, then Israel is going to properly represent or properly image God to the world as a holy nation, as something distinct from the rest of creation. And the final phrase designates Israel as a particular type of kingdom, a kingdom of priests. It's a very interesting phrase. That is, the Dempster says, service of God on behalf of the people and and vice versa, the people serving Yahweh. So it it will be a kingdom not... Primarily run by, by political savviness or, or military dominance, although those are going to be aspects of this, this kingdom in the Old Testament. But it's fundamentally a, a kingdom of service to Yahweh and submission to Yahweh. So it, it, it kind of, that, that phrase, kingdom of priests, redefines for us um, the meaning of dominion that's going to occur in the Old Testament. Dominion through a kingdom of priests will be marked fundamentally by, by service to Yahweh and service to Yahweh's people. So Israel agrees to, to be in covenant with Yahweh, um, which is a good choice. But when, when faced with God's presence, the, the Israelite people are, are terrified. They, they need a mediator between them and God. And Moses functions as that mediator in the story. So Moses goes up on the mount to to commune with God, and he he then disperses what he learns from God. He leads and teaches the people of what they are to do. Um, and in chapter 25 of Exodus, we see Moses ascend the, the mountain where he spends 40 days. Up there, receiving the plans for the creation of the tabernacle. And as we noted in our, our first lesson, when we talked about the Garden of Eden being a, a cosmic temple or a cosmic tabernacle, where God's presence dwelt among his people, we see more clear indicators of this connection in the book of Exodus. So the tabernacle is referred to by God in Exodus 29 verses 45 through 46 as the place where, where I, this is what he's saying, as I, that, that's the Lord, will reside among them. The, the Ark of the Covenant is placed in the innermost sanctuary, which, which echoes the garden's imagery associated with life in the garden in the closest. Um, uh, and above the Ark, we, we see cherubim guarding, which we also see cherubim guarding the way of the tree of life in Genesis three twenty four. And so the, these points of connection aren't just there for us for no reason. I think we're, we're intended to to connect these points of connection and it's, it's, it's for us to see that Israel having the, the tabernacle and the presence of God among his people is being called to, to a restoration of creation rule of Genesis 1 and 2. So this this... Now this sounds all really great after this liberation from the Egyptians. Just, just follow the narrative with me. Israel has just been delivered from Egyptian slavery, made to be in covenant with God, and given God's law to govern their nation. And their obedience to the law will represent God, will, will image God to the nations as a holy nation and a kingdom of priests, as God's representatives on earth, God's presence going to dwell with his people in the tabernacle, which is a picture of of, of paradise, of of pre-fall creation existence. And this all sounds wonderful. It sounds incredible. But in the narrative, quickly, we see a massive problem, a big problem. And it's not Pharaoh this time. It's actually the Israelites themselves and this has been humanity's problem, our problem, ever since Genesis 3. It's sin. So, in the outline of, of Exodus, we see separating the, the planning of the tabernacle in Exodus chapters 25 through 31 and its construction in the middle of the Israelites' camp. That's the tabernacle's construction in and, and Exodus 35. Through 40, in the middle of those two sections is Exodus 32 through 34, which chronicles Israel's sin with the golden calf event. So, what happens in this story is that that Moses is up on the mountaintop getting the instructions for the tabernacle. The people of Israel grow impatient with Moses and, in turn, break the first two commandments of God's law by, by building a calf an idol that they then worshipped. This is what Dempster calls Israel's original sin, idol worship, as, as it's going to come up over and over and over again throughout Israel's history. They're going to continually go to idols to worship. So Israel creates this golden calf, and I think the text indicates, there's some dispute about this, but I think the text indicates that, that, that um They created the golden calf to represent Yahweh. So they're not worshiping another deity, um, which I think is important to note, but they're still doing exactly what the commandments say not to do. Um, Worship an image of God. And thus they engage engage in, in false worship of the one true God. And they're engaging in worship in a way that he has not authorized which is a big deal to God and His glory. And as a result of the sin, God threatens to destroy Israel and start again anew with Moses. But Moses intercedes for the people and pleads on their behalf that God spare them. And Moses doesn't, this is really interesting, Moses doesn't go to God arguing on behalf of the people's worthiness. Right? That wouldn't work. They just completely failed and were boneheaded. They had no defense, right? Moses does something interesting. He pleads on behalf of God's character, his reputation amongst the nations, and God's covenant with the patriarchs in Genesis. So he points all the way back to Genesis 12. And God has, has mercy on Israel after, in the narrative after this intercession by Moses. But there is damage that's, that's done by this sin with the golden calf. It's a big moment in Israel's history. The Israelites, they, they break the covenant with Yahweh. They break their end of the deal, so to speak, where they, they, they completely abandon God's commandments, God's law that he just gave them. So again, a big moment in the storyline of Scripture and the tension in the narrative that we should feel when we're reading this is what will the result of this disobedience be? What will the result of this disobedience be? And we see that Moses ascends the mountain a second time to, to renew the covenant with Yahweh. He, he came down from the mountain. I didn't say that. He came down from the mountain. He Remember, he shatters the, the, the stones with the Ten Commandments on it. He's, he's angry. Um, he, has, he has to go get... Um, New stones of commandments. And Moses says he wants to see God's face. He isn't permitted to do this by, by Yahweh, or he would die, but he's put in the cleft of the rock where he sees the, the back of God. And what we see in, in Exodus, two very important um, verses, is Exodus 33:18 through20, and Exodus 34, verses five through seven. They're, they're very important. God self-decloses his, his name and his sovereignty in the first text, that he, he will be gracious to whom he will be gracious, and he will have mercy on whom he will show mercy. In the second instance, we see God's self-disclosed character. The text says, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful. This, this is the Exodus 34 We, we learn a great deal about Yahweh, about God, in these verses. As God's name implies, I am who I am. I will be who I will be. Essentially, he is free to do what he pleases. There's nothing constraining God. He will have mercy on whom he wants to have mercy. He is the sovereign over everything. And we find out that, that in the Exodus 34 passage that God is Merciful and gracious, which is sweet news, wonderfully sweet news for the Israelites who have just so heinously sinned against God's commands. Dempster notes that that Moses immediately understands the significance of of this revelation from God to him. And he urges the Lord to forgive his people and God mercifully renews his covenant with Israel. And so Moses then descends the mountain again, although this time he's not enraged by the people of Israel's sin, but he carries the new tablets of the Ten Commandments that, that he had previously destroyed in anger after the golden calf incident. And his face, right, the text says to us that his face shines with the glory of God after being in God's presence. Israel has a mediator that, that keeps the covenant between them and God or renews the covenant between them and God, which points forward to us to a greater mediator, Jesus, who, who will establish a new and better covenant with God's elect people. So the, the remainder of Exodus is essentially the, the execution of the plans to build the tabernacle, and when the tabernacle is complete, the divine fire moves from the mountaintop of Sinai into the tabernacle. So the, the, what's, what's important for that in the text is, is that God is now with his people. He is with his people in their camp. And this is very significant in the storyline of Scripture. But, but Dempster points out, at the same time, at the end of Exodus, the, the tabernacle is impermanent. Right? It's, a, it's a portable place. It's not a permanent structure. And they've just come off this event where they, where they, they almost got wiped out by God because of their, their, their sin. And so for us, at the end of Exodus, questions remain for us, the, the reader in the story. How will, Israel, how will Israel be able to maintain its relationship with the holy God and what obstacles, what enemies await Israel's journey to the promised land? And Dempster argues Le- Leviticus answers the first question how will Israel be able to maintain its relationship with the Holy God? And Numbers answers the second. So before moving on to Leviticus, any questions or comments about Exodus? What, was that what obstacles in, or, and enemies await Israel's journey? to the promised land. Since they haven't entered the promised land yet, what, what other things are going to come up? Yeah. Which I think is a good, a really great connection of, of who really has dominion. right? They, the, the, the Egyptians appeared to have all the wealth, all the gold, but God used it, took the wealth, gave it to his people for his purposes, which is for his glory. Yeah, that's a great that's a great point. Miss Alitha. Um, like it. Yeah, it is great. Yes. Thank you for saying that. Yeah. Maybe you did. No. I I is mentioned briefly. But I mean, I sin, Yeah, he does not touch on that, but there's definitely there is a connection there um, that scholars and theologians have made that connection, and it is an important connection. And that uh, the Exodus theme is going to come up in the New Testament. It's very similar language of the Exodus from the slavery of to sin. So there definitely is a connection there, which, as you'll notice, in Dempster's book and in the series, I can't, we can't, well, I guess you could make all the connections, but we would be here for five years maybe, maybe longer, I don't know. (laughs) But it's good. I want y'all to be reading your Bibles and, and trying to make these these connections that you see in later revealed scripture. Um, it's very good. Huh? Yes. Um, he does not. I. But I've also seen that connection made through from other biblical theologians. That is another important connection to make. Yeah, I think that's right. All right, let's move on to Leviticus. We've got. 12 minutes, we'll finish it, <laughs> maybe. So Le- Leviticus continues the, the Sinai experience and, and particularly the laws and practice practices revealed to Moses for the Israelite nation that requires holiness. So Leviticus, if you're taking notes, I think it's broken down into a, a pretty straightforward outline for the reader. Chapters 1 through 7, we see the the means for approaching god through sacrifice and then chapters 8 through 10 there's there's a narrative account describing the the installation of the priesthood and a disaster associated with wrong approach to god right where where the lord kills nadab and abihu for offering worship that he didn't authorize again that that theme that we saw with the golden calf. And just a side note, Nadab um, and Abihu, the Nadab and Abihu story and the story of the golden calf should instruct us today as God's people to understand that God cares very much how he is worshipped. We're not free to do what we want in regards to to worshipping the Lord. And this has, I think, massive applications for what we do in, in corporate worship as a body of believers. These have both of these stories, uh, Exodus 32, Nadab, and Abihu, have historically been some of the foundational stories that have led some in the Reformed tradition to abide by something called the regulative principle, which is just the idea that, that what we do in corporate worship as New Covenant believers, as Christians, should be regulated by what is clear to us in Scripture and, and nothing more. And that idea from the Reformed tradition comes from stories like this, where, where God punishes, he kills individuals for offering God worship in a way that he didn't authorize, in a way that he didn't command. So the principle being we should only worship God in, in the church, only, the, only in the way that he authorizes in Scripture. Okay, sorry, back to the outline. Leviticus 11 through 15 Leviticus 11 through 15 deals with laws relating to uncleanness and, and holiness, while Leviticus 16, which is, is understood by most scholars as the center of Leviticus, but it can also be argued as it's central to the, the whole Pentateuch, the, the whole Torah. Leviticus 16 has the law dealing with the Day of Atonement, which we'll speak about more here in a second. And then we have chapters 17 through 27, which deal with with kind of major ethical issues for the entire Israelite community, for the nation of Israel. So ethical issues for the nation of Israel. Those those chapters you might hear sometimes referred to as the Holiness Code. So one big theme that that Dempster highlights in the book of Leviticus is what he calls a geography of holiness, which I think is a creative term, interesting way to talk about geography, <laughs> whereby sin is removed from the Israelite camp by means of sacrifice, and this sacrifice is offered by a person with a, a specific genealogical descent, which is the tribe of Levi, who, who is the, the priestly line, the line of Aaron, right, Moses' brother. So notice Dempster still finds the the themes of geography and genealogy even in Leviticus. So so the Levites intercede for Israel as it it brings various sacrifices and offerings on behalf of the Israelite people. And a particular seed of Israel, the the high priest, who is the the only one that can have access to God's immediate presence in in the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle... He, he represents the whole of Israel. So in this one person, the people can live in God's presence. So I'm hoping you see the connection that the author of Hebrews makes uh, with, with Jesus as the great high priest, who, who gives us access to the Father through his final perfect blood sacrifice. So it's a, I think that's a beautiful connection we can make in Leviticus so let's talk about the, the Day of Atonement in Leviticus 16. So the Day of Atonement was the 10th the day of the 7th month and was, was the only time the high priest could gain immediate access to the Divine Presence by entering the inner place of the sanctuary where, where the Ark of the Covenant was, with, where the cherubim was. And, and the high priest makes annual atonement for the sins of the people by sprinkling blood of a sacrificial animal on the lid of the Ark of the Covenant. And then he, he's then able to leave the sanctuary and place his hand on the head of an animal and confess all the sins of the Israelite community and then has the animal then removed from the camp. So this, this is how it would work. And Dempster says when, when this this happens, a, a transfer occurs, right? But as the the goat departs from the camp, means the the comprehensive removal of the community's sins from the camp for that year, ensuring that for that year the Israelites can coexist, can, can dwell and have communion with a holy God. But their sins are taken away. So all of the sins of the community are placed on the, on the scapegoat who, who takes the sins away from the camp, and as a result the people can exist in the presence of God without fear of death, um, and without, or without the fear of death for, for the punishment that their sins deserve. And again, we have, a, have another point of connection, I think, to, to Genesis 22 in the Passover, where, where animals are slain or, or the animals take the place of the sinner. Atonement. So now the, the holiness code that, that comes after the Day of Atonement in Leviticus in chapter 17 and 27, reveals, I think, important logic to us as the reader. So after the indicative the, 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 of sacrificial forgiveness In um, the Day of Atonement, there, there's an impar- ethical imperative of holiness. So after the Israelites have their sin forgiven, as a matter of fact, on the Day of Atonement, as, as, as what happens in reality, then they're called to live a lifestyle of complete holiness in the narrative of Leviticus. They are called to be holy as Yahweh is holy. And we're going to see, we see that same logic in the New Testament as well. Our salvation in Christ leads to, to righteous, holy living. And for the Israelites, they are to be holy in all spheres of life, just like for, for us. But they're there to treat one another justly, they're to live differently than, than the surrounding pagan nations, keeping with the theme of land. Uh, the Israelites are even called to bring the land that they're, that they're going to be given under divine lordship. So that's the central focus of Leviticus 25 with the, the institution of the sabbatical year where, where Israel, when Israel enters Canaan, a yearly sabbatical rest would be required for the land, which I find this so interesting, but a yearly sabbatical rest will, will be required for the land, which would affirm to everyone, right, that, that this is the Lord's land. So they could work the land for six years and let it rest for the seventh. So I think, talk about having faith in, in Yahweh's provision, not being able to work what provides you food for a year. Um, and after seven sabbatical cycles, so 49 years, would then come the year of Jubilee, where all the land that, that poor Israelites who, who sold would be given back to them, and, and Israelite slaves who would sometimes uh, go into slavery to pay off debts, they would gain their freedom in this year of Jubilee. And this would happen on the Day of Atonement in the 50th year. So thus, this particular day is, had, had revelations rev, Relevance, not only for um, forgiveness of sins, which they got every year on the Day of Atonement, but also for for land and and liberty for the Israelites. But there's also a a negative note in Leviticus, just as there was in Exodus, and that is all of this talk of sacrifices for sin and the, the annual ritual Day of Atonement presupposes what? It, it, it presupposes sin and transgression of God's people. We see this even in the narrative accounts and the story. story. So remember Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron. They were destroyed by, by God's fire when they offered sacrifice wrongly. In Leviticus 24, we see a member of the communi- community break the third commandment. He, he cursed and blasphemed the name of God, and then he, he stoned to death. In Leviticus 24, and the book ends, or, or nearly ends, chapter 26, with with divine blessings and divine curses for obedience and disobedience to the law that God has given them. And the curses far outweigh the blessings, just in length in, in the text, which Dempster argues indicates to the reader there's an expectation then of covenantal violation. And, and covenantal disobedience by the Israelites. The final curse we see there in Leviticus 26 is exile, which is the ultimate curse as it's the death of the nation itself. It's the death of the nation of Israel. But there is, as we've seen so throughout this, there is a note of hope and this bleakness, hope and this punishment Exile, Leviticus 26 40 through 42, says that God will remember his covenant with the patriarchs, with with the Abrahamic covenant. And if the people confess their sins and have a circumcised heart, have a transformed heart, we could say, then the exile will end. So, this is going to be a very big theme that you should mark down as we, as we move closer to the real exile of Israel in the story. And you're going to see, we're going to see prophets who, who prophesy a, a new covenant with Yahweh where, where hearts will be transformed. Hearts will be circumcised of these covenant members. As Jeremiah says that the law of God will now be written on their hearts in this new covenant. And Yahweh will remember the sins of this people no more. He's going to forgive them fully. And so what we can see here in Leviticus 26 is a a glorious hope embedded in the curses of Israelite disobedience. God will establish his covenant when, when the people recognize his lordship and confess their guilt. God commits himself, right? We see here in Leviticus 26, God commits himself to their restoration. He remains faithful even if his people are disloyal. We've seen that again in in Exodus 32, the golden calf incident. We're seeing it again here. And that is good news. It's great news as we see the story progress. God is faithful to his promises even when his people are not. And as we all know, that is gloriously good news. Our God is faithful to his promises. He's faithful to his word. And that seems like a good and appropriate place to end this week. So next week we're going to pick back up in the book of Numbers, see how far we get, hopefully get into Joshua. So you guys are dismissed. Thank you so much for listening in the comments. We'll see you next week.